Well, that gospel lesson was rather interesting. It all takes place at the palace of a man named Annas, who we is told, we are told is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. What's left out, and what many of John's original readers probably knew, is that Annas himself was formerly the high priest. In fact, he was the first high priest appointed by the Romans in the newly created province of Judea. The area had previously been a Roman client kingdom under the rule of Herod the Great, the guy who the wise men visited on their way to see Jesus at his birth. Herod was succeeded by his son Archelaus. The Romans got fed up with Archelaus and they deposed him. They turned the kingdom of Judah, of Judea, into part of the Roman province of Judea. They appointed Quirinius, probably the same guy from the Christmas story who did the census, as legate. And Quirinius appointed Annas to be the high priest to govern Jewish theological affairs, under him, of course. Annas, though, was removed from office about 10 years or so before Jesus' ministry. However, he was still highly influential. His five sons, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas, each served as high priest after him. When it comes to high priest, you might think of him as the power behind the throne, or at least the one pulling the strings when it comes to religious affairs. So that's why Jesus was taken to Annas instead of to Caiaphas. And then we read his interrogation of Jesus. Well, it's really quite lame. Annas says, what have you been teaching your followers? And Jesus says, everyone knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I've not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. Sometimes I imagine Jesus rolling his eyes at the question. You know, why are you asking me this question? If you've had teenagers, or if you've been one yourself, you know exactly what I mean. There really are such things as stupid questions. And Annas asked one of those. Jesus had been teaching openly in the temple. But at some point, the temple leaders began to realize that Jesus was a threat to them and to their cozy and very remunerative relationship with Rome and with the Jewish people. That's why they wanted Jesus arrested and executed. So, of course, the interrogation doesn't go anywhere. A frustrated guard slaps Jesus. Jesus responds, hey, I've told the truth. I don't deserve a beating. So anyway, Annas, the string puller, passes Jesus off to the official high priest, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who has the legal authority to begin prosecution. So what's the point of this narrative in the gospel? I think John includes it for two purposes. First, it indicates the high-level nature of the plot against Jesus. The temple leaders had come to the conclusion that Jesus' teaching threatened their lucrative positions. He was popular, and they feared to openly go after him. So they did it quietly at night among their own in-crowd of friends. And the second reason? It sets the stage for the account of Peter's denial. 
you might remember that a few hours before all this takes place, Peter had told Jesus that he would die for Jesus. And by the way, all the other disciples said the same thing. But Jesus tells Peter, no, Peter, you will deny me three times before the second crowing of a rooster that morning. By the way, I love how the King James Version, some of the older people remember that, words it, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. It just has such a nice poetic ring. But we use modern English. Anyway, Peter really did have just cause to be concerned for his own safety. He was probably the most visible of the 12 apostles. He's definitely an impulsive guy, often the first of them to speak or to act, so he would have been known. And he often did that before thinking things through. So, the soldiers brought Jesus to Annas' palace. Peter followed at a distance to see how things would play out. And he was joined by another disciple, we're told. We don't know for sure whom this other disciple is. I like to think it was one of the younger followers of Jesus, not one of the apostles. Many people think it's John Mark who is considered the author of the gospel, according to Mark. Many think this is the same guy whom the soldiers tried to seize along with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the one that kind of humorously slipped out of his tunic and ran away in the buff. But I can think of two other reasons to think that John Mark is his disciple. First. He is the only writer who relates that a rooster crowed two times. All the other Gospels have it only once. Second, he was later said to be a companion of Peter in his travels, and whose Gospel, the Gospel according to Mark, was based upon Peter's recollections, and therefore he'd know more about Peter's reactions. If he was a guy, he apparently had found clothes to wear, warm clothes because the night was cold, and followed along to Anna's palace. Being younger, he probably wasn't considered much of a threat to the temple leaders. Besides, he knew Annas, and he was known by the household, so he was able to get into the courtyard and then to persuade the girl in charge of the gate to let Peter in as well. Most of us know what happens next. We just heard it. The girl watching the gate says to Peter, in front of all those in the courtyard, that Peter was a follower of Jesus. And Peter basically, in modern English, said, nope, not me. That was his answer. And the Gospel of Mark was crowed a first time. Well, the group was gathered around the fire to keep warm. And another servant girl, these servant girls are very, very observant, Notice Peter and tells them, this man was with Jesus. Peter gets more emphatic with an oath this time. I swear I don't know the man. And a while later, one of the bystanders came over to Peter and noting Peter's Galilean accent and having seen Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, claimed that Peter must be one of Jesus' disciples. Now, John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel just say that Peter denied it. Matthew and Mark's Gospels relate that Peter became quite emphatic, calling down a curse on himself. 
So in modern language, one might imagine Peter, the impetuous working class fisherman, being a bit vulgar and forceful. In our language, he'd probably use the F word in his angry denial. Bleat me if I'm lying to you. And then a rooster crowed. Luke reports that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Peter realized what he had done and left the courtyard crying in shame. That's quite a story. What can we learn from all of this? Well, several things. Taken together, the different gospel accounts, they differ from each other, but they point out the tr- but taken together, they point out the truth of Peter's denial, the p- truth of the account of Peter's denial. First off, when looking at all four of the gospel accounts, one notices that they basically agree, but there are some variations and differences. Mark has the rooster crowing two times. John gives extra details about Peter's third accuser. Matthew and Mark both note that Peter called a curse down on himself while the others just stick with a simple denial. What do these differences indicate? They are indicative of different memories and the emphases that different people have of the same event. Ask any police detective. He will tell you, eyewitnesses usually differ on what details they remember. And they sometimes even seem to contradict each other. But when examined, however, and properly considering the personal experiences and spatial perspectives of the witnesses, together they could be used to form a more complete and accurate account. Putting a set of eyewitness accounts together, investigators can pretty much say definitely that this is how it all went down. Second thing to note, Peter comes off looking badly. So do the other disciples who ran away and didn't even look to see what was happening. But this is not how people wrote about themselves in the Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures of that time. While our culture, our culture might admire, at least to a certain extent, a person who admits his own failures, in those cultures, that would be far from the case. In those cultures, people writing about themselves would trumpet their good deeds, their honor, their character, their dignity, and totally ignore anything negative about themselves. The gospel writers, however, in this account and in others, show themselves, the disciples, especially the men, as often selfish, mistaken, ignorant, or even just clueless at times. In those days, this simply was not done. But the fact that each of the gospel writers did so, however, is yet another indication that they are telling the truth. Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection really occurred in the way they said it did. Taken together, they established that Jesus really did die and rise to life again. How does Peter's denial affect your life? Well, there's sometimes a temptation to look down on Peter. He talked a big talk about being brave and putting Jesus first. But when push came to shove, he didn't measure up. He was certain he had 
enough courage to die for Jesus. Jesus warned Peter that he would deny Jesus. Peter was super confident that he would never do such a thing as deny Jesus. He was so confident that he went to a place where he was almost sure to be accused. And then he denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. He realized what he had done and left crying in shame. What could we learn? Well, the most common observation about Peter's denial quotes Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sounds nice, but as good American Lutherans, we ask ourselves, what does this mean? Two things immediately come to mind. First, you have to have a correct estimate of yourself. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this isn't merely a Christian teaching, but a mark of human maturity. Philosophers usually come up with something like this whenever they try to figure out what makes a mature, full human being. Plato, for example, tells us that the maxim, know yourself, was one of the greatest bits of advice ever given by the earlier Greek sages. And yes, in reality, this is common sense, but it's a lot easier said than done. Peter thought he had a correct estimate of himself. He was wrong. We all do the, do the same thing. You might think of Walter Mitty in uh, Thurber's book, a man with his heroic, heroic daydreams about himself well above his abilities. Well, we might not be that bad. We each likely overestimate ourselves in our own ways. For example, you might think that you will always defend Christ, but ask yourself, has there ever been a time when others were denigrating Christianity and you failed to speak up? If you're like me, the answer is easily yes. A second lesson learned from Peter is to avoid situations where you are likely to be tempted. It wouldn't have taken a lot of forethought for Peter, which he didn't normally have, to recognize that his association with Jesus would likely be recognized at the house of Jesus' enemies, and that admitting to the relationship might be a bit risky. In Claudia Gray's Evernight book series, one of the main characters, Raquel, firmly declares, self-knowledge is better than self-control any day, and I know myself well enough to know how I act around cookies. Well, with me, it's not so much cookies as uh, chocolate in general, but chocolate chip cookies might make the cut, and there are a few other things I'd rather not talk about, but each of us is different, which is why self-knowledge is so important. Ask yourself, what specifically tempts you? St. Paul wrote to Timothy that Timothy should flee youthful passions. But that really applies to everything that tempts us to sin, even us older people. Knowing what sins we are especially tempted by 
helps us to know what to flee and, importantly, where not to go. Now, Peter ended up crying in grief when he realized what he had done. But the story does not end there. Peter is forgiven. He is one of the first disciples at the empty tomb. He was restored as Jesus' friend. Jesus knows what temptation is. He faced it himself and then overcame it. When we turn to him, he will help us overcome temptation as well. And when we, like Peter, forget about God and don't turn to him and end up yielding to temptation, God will forgive us for Jesus' sake because of what Jesus did for us. And I think there's another experience of Peter that sheds light on this and offers a lesson for us. Later on in the gospel, John relates another encounter, a dialogue between Peter and Jesus. I'm going to use J.B. Phillips' New Testament translation because it illustrates something from the Greek that most English translations fail to note. This dialogue takes place in Galilee a few weeks after Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others? Yes, Lord, he replied, you know that I am your friend. Then feed my lambs, returned Jesus. And then Jesus said for the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, answered Peter. You know that I am your friend. Then care for my sheep, replied Jesus. And then for a third time, Jesus spoke to Peter and said, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Peter was deeply hurt because Jesus' third question to him was, are you even my friend? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I am your friend. Then feed my sheep, said Jesus. I think there is an important lesson illustrated here in this exchange between Jesus and Simon Peter. It is this. Even though Peter had denied Jesus, and even though Peter had trouble declaring his love for Jesus, he only admitted to friendship, even so, Jesus tasked him to help his fellow Christians. And this denier became a great witness of Jesus to many people. And that should be very comforting to us. Despite our own failures, Jesus can still work through us to do his will and help others. Amen.